You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Michael. Do you remember that time we wrote an article together? Of course, it was like the greatest day because my name was on something published and I was like, I am author. So we had just kind of met on Twitter through the SS chat community and we were doing all kinds of, um, you know, tweeting about different topics and learning from each other. And you had a great blog and you were writing about some of the lessons. I still right? have a great blog. But I know. You, it still has a great blog. <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about that, that blog post that I read that kind of incited us writing together. Yeah. So I was doing a, a project on the Enlightenment and I was having my students, they were pretending they were like marketing firms working for an Enlightenment philosopher who unexplicably is back alive. And so they had to tell the world who they were. And they fielded questions from educators, from like local politicians. Uh, and you were one of the people who asked a question to, was it Mary Wollstonecraft? Yeah, I think so. I think I, uh, yeah, gosh, I can't remember what the question was. I, I think know, it, was it was something so- about what they thought about No Child Left Behind, what Mary Wollstonecraft would think about No Child Left Behind today. And so I read this and I said, hey, Michael, let's turn this into a scholarly article. And we got it published. Why did we do that? I mean, your blog post was already getting a lot of hits. It was, and people are doing it. Um, I think it was ideal. I mean, it was to reach audience maybe, but I don't know how much of an audience it, it did reach. I don't know. And so there's something kind of cool about publishing something. Because but... your name's there. Oh my God, the best day ever. I became a footnote. What? <laughs> I've never been a footnote until then. And I, I went out to dinner that night and I said for footnotes. It's weird when it says like Kretken Milton, that's us. And, uh, so, but I think there's something to be said about, um, why we did it. And so what's the difference between kind of publishing on a blog and and then, and then, you know, publishing in a scholarly journal and then going all the way and doing educational research. And today I think we're going to discuss that a little bit. And we have a great guest who wrote a really interesting article recently. And if you write a really interesting article, we might bug you and ask you to be on our podcast. So we'd like to walk, uh, welcome in Paul McClellan. How you doing, Paul? Hello. Hi there. Hey, Paul. Um, Paul's our first guest from over on the other side of the pond. Do uh, you want to tell us a little bit about where you're from and your background in education, Paul? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm based in the UK, and I don't have a background in education at all, I'm afraid. I'm a chemist by training. Uh, I used to do research chemistry, and then I moved into science publishing, and now I'm the deputy editor of a magazine called uh, Education in Chemistry, which is a magazine for chemistry teachers. Uh, published by the Royal Society of Chemistry. So you kind of are in education then now, right? I mean, you're working with teachers. Kind of, yeah. It's kind of an interesting position. Uh, So I'm not an educator and I'm not an education researcher, but I have this uh, kind of work in this gap between the two. Um, And I think that it's interesting you said it that way because there is kind of a gap between the two. Uh, Some people would call it a chasm. Um, Some people would call it a valley. I don't know what the, the proper <laughs> word is. But but today we want to discuss a little bit kind of the big idea of just the research teacher divide that exists. Um, people are doing education research and teachers are teaching 
And there seems to be a divide between those two worlds oftentimes. And your article kind of addressed that. Yeah, sure. So that's 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 certainly how uh, how it seems to me. And we kind of we kind of try and address that that gap in in the work we do. But uh, over the last few months, as as you have picked up in that article, is that I, I've been kind of interested as to why why this is and what what, what we could do about um, bringing those results and the techniques, teaching techniques developed by education research into classrooms. So there's an interesting uh, publish uh, an interesting study published uh, earlier this year. From some education researchers based in the based in the UK at Durham University, some schools had got some funding to do some uh, research themselves, and they came to these researchers, and they designed a a study where these primary schools, I suppose, um, I guess you call them grade schools in the US, maybe. Yeah, uh, elementary kid, kids. Yeah, uh, kids from about uh, five to to eleven. So they had about nine schools, um, and they wanted to implement some. Uh, some teaching techniques from education research, and then evaluates how they how how that implementation worked. So, what the the research they chose was um, uh, enhanced feedback techniques and uh, kind of formalizations described by John Hattie and Helen Timperley. And the teachers and project leads had some training and uh, and were given this research paper and kind of had to figure out how they could use and apply this research in the classroom. And then they went back to their schools and they cascaded that teaching, uh, that, re- that that training onto all the other teachers. And every teacher in the school like, for a whole year applied this research as much as they could. So the research had shown effective ways to give feedback to students that would help learning. And so the idea is, that, okay, if the research is showing this, then let's implement it in our entire school and the results should hopefully follow. So what happened? Well, yeah, absolutely. So the the research itself had shown that it could have an effect size of about four months progress, uh, if you want to measure it that way. Wow. Uh, so it should have a good positive effect on the student, on, on outcomes for students, right? But the research showed that nothing changed. There were no, there was no impact, no, certainly no positive impact from from the the intervention why i was doing a scooby-doo face like i was like what <laughs> yeah well that's that's the big question so there's a there's a few a few suggested reasons although we didn't really get down to what exactly is the difference between you've got published research which shows this is shown to have an effect and then you do it in a you do it in some classes and it doesn't it could be for any number of reasons, really, but a lot of the teachers were quite confused. In particular, when they first encountered the the research, they they didn't quite understand what what it was getting at. Uh, they they you know they thought they already were using feedback, and they couldn't they couldn't understand. There were some 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 of them said, "Look, I, I just don't understand what what the author's wanting me to do." I mean, I can <laughs> I can see I can see research words here, but I don't know what that. That means when I'm in a class teaching. Our first basic problem is this implementation problem. Um, we we've added this is a super podcast. We've added another guest, Jeremy Stoddard, a friend of the pod, uh, who's who's been on a previous episode where we talked about film. And Jeremy's uh, expertise is to he's been a journal editor. He he took over for the main social studies research journal, Theory and Research in Social Education. And so he has a lot of background besides just being well published himself. Uh, uh, Jeremy, have you come across that a lot? Just like hearing about an Im- basic implementation that teachers just 
the research doesn't make sense once they take a look at it in, in terms of their practice. Yeah, I think we have a lot of those same types of things. Anytime you're trying to implement a curriculum or a certain type of intervention, and there's a couple of reasons for this. One, I would say, is that oftentimes a research article probably doesn't do enough description of what that implementation and intervention actually looked like that someone could pull from it unless they're on sort of the inside of the study. So oftentimes there needs to be sort of that, um, in, that translator in the middle. Um, and I think Paul talks about that a little bit too. It might be um, maybe from that study, they published the curriculum that they used and do professional development around it in order to help then schools implement it better. But I think with any research, you're always going to be limited to the conditions under which a study was done, the level of fidelity of the, of the implementation um, that was there. And so you're always going to have issues of, of trying to replicate that. Um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember which field it was recently, they said they couldn't replicate like half the research that was in the main journals. Um, and it's, it's because of those types of issues. So it's very hard, I think, especially in school conditions, to replicate the exact same findings. And oftentimes you need to adapt it for your particular context. And I think that's, um, that's where maybe teachers are, are sometimes equipped, but maybe not always equipped to be able to figure that out in the time that they have. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, what, what other um, problems came up that, that you kind of were able to pin down, Paul? So one of the things, so I spoke to the, the researchers that published this study, and one of the things uh, they were quite keen to point out was the language that the, the research was written in. I was speaking, I spoke to some research, some researchers here as well that um, kind of expanded that, not just from the language of research papers, but just who research papers are targeted at. Education research needs to make a case for new knowledge. It needs to, it needs to prove it's found something new in education. And to do that, you have to write a technical article mm -hmm. um, that convinces other people who, who understand the technical article that they found something new. And of course, that technical article isn't aimed at somebody who's actually teaching. And it's kind of an interesting case for education research, because obviously when I was back doing chemistry, I was both writing the articles and reading them. The people who the audience for the research articles are the same people who are writing the articles. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't have that in education research. You've got technical research being published that's meant to have an impact on practitioners, which is an entirely separate audience. Um, so the, they talked a lot about that, that, that difficulty of teachers accessing the, the, just the language or being able to decipher research papers and figure out what they mean for their teaching. For this show, I do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of reading uh, of journal articles. Um, but if it wasn't for this show, I don't know how much I would do that. Some of them are really dense. It takes a while to get through. Yeah, I feel like I'm definitely not the audience as a classroom yeah. teacher. Yeah, I would yeah. sorry. There's a couple of things here, too. I think one of the things is in a lot of teacher prep programs, I don't know how much student teachers, people coming into the profession are engaging in reading a lot of that research at that level because it is the type of training. The other thing that I learned as a graduate student is I was always told, assume a lazy reader. And that means there's a genre to writing educational research and that researchers are really lazy and they're going to jump to the part of the article that they're used to seeing. So if they want to look only at the methodology for it, there's sort of a shorthand in any research article that they know how to read it. Um, and I think for practitioners, they're just going to get bogged down in something that doesn't translate well, which is, which is exactly what Paul's pointing out here. So I think there's a, there's a sort of a, a genre issue. And also, I don't think a lot of practitioners are necessarily trained to read a lot of, of today's educational research. And I wonder how much that 
most teachers have even encountered research in like positive spaces, you know, in schools. I, I remember when uh, my first year of teaching, we had to go to a bunch of like uh, workshops. And I remember hearing over and over the phrase, like the research shows this, the research shows that. <laughs> and it was just said as if like, if everyone implements this simple Marzano framework or whatever it was, that it will do these wonders in your class. And I was a you know, in my first graduate class, so I was very proud that I could ask, well, what were the methods? And like everyone got had no clue what the heck that meant. And it, but, you know, there wasn't even a real discussion around it. And I think it's because there is pressure in schools to, to use research, but it's hard. Like, when do you have time to sift through like the contextual factors to make this apply? So it doesn't happen like Paul's first study where, you know, um, there was some disconnect and it didn't work. Absolutely. I mean, some of the teachers I've spoken to say that it's not so much that the reading the papers is the problem is that figuring out what papers are relevant to yeah. you and what you it's figuring. Yeah. The time it takes to parse the abstract and realize, Oh, this might be of interest to me. It, it's, it's just too much for, for somebody who's trying to try and juggle teaching as well. And I don't know what the situation is like in the U S but here in the UK, teachers are under increasing pressure and workload. Um, We're there too. It's yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, I don't know a single teacher that doesn't work every evening. It's, it's ridiculous, but yeah, where's the time? So another point, there's a couple other points you made, Paul, do you want to walk through those and we'll discuss uh, the last couple points you made in your article about some of the uh, issues that come up in, in bridging that, uh, research and, and teacher gap. Researchers don't have incentives and that there's just not conduits for, for education research. Sure. So in terms of researchers not having incentives, I think it's a, it's a bit of a broad state, statement. I think depending on the, the funding and, and, and the, the institutions you work at, it might be a bit different, but particularly, particularly here, um, we have, a, we have a, a research score called the REF, uh, Research Excellence Framework. And it essentially gives departments scores for the research impact they have. And the higher your ref, the more funding you get. So there's a lot of pressure on researchers to maximize their publishing output. And if you're an education researcher, uh, writing those research articles is, is good, but you don't have the same incentives for doing translation work for you write the research article, but then you might want to translate it for teachers, but without the same incentive to uh, to do that, which is, uh, I imagine, a bit of a problem. But in terms of the conduits, and this is something and I, I, I question to where, who does this. Um, for me, I'm in a lucky professional situation where this is my job. It's my job to find the interesting things coming out of education research and putting it, put it in a way that that is useful to teachers. But you know, that could be done in any number of ways. It doesn't have to be a magazine. It can be, uh, it could be a Facebook group. It could be a MOOC, or it could even be a, a podcast. It, you know, it doesn't have to be any one thing. But who does that? It's it's that's a big question. Um, but the research, so the, the the original Durham study said that this this is kind of what's needed. We need to we need to have people who understand what the research says and what teachers need to know from it and how how to translate that uh, for classroom practice. We've, we've clearly established there's some problems. There's some gaps. How do you get the research to teachers? How do they make it work? I mean, Jeremy, what do you, do you have some ideas about how to overcome some of these problems and get K-12 
teachers um, better able to use research or create research or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Paul raises some good issues. And, and like his magazine, I think a lot of fields in the U.S. have some kind of a practitioner magazine or journal that helps to translate some research to, to practitioners. But there's often, you know, they're limited in room and limited in terms of how it might apply to their particular context. I think the, you know, the best case seems to be when teachers are reaching out to someone like Paul and they're saying, we have this problem, we're trying to figure out how to do it. And they're working together um, in their in their context to try to figure it out. So when teachers are trying to apply these things through lesson study or other ways, um, th those may be really good applications of it. I think we do see, though, um, and I think he's right on the incentives. You know, a lot of especially people going up for tenure in universities need to publish in high impact journals. They have to show those same types of statistics. Um, although I think we are seeing some even really senior level education researchers in the U.S. saying basically we're only going to do things now for practitioners based on the research we've done. Um, I think Sam Weinberg is one of these now who's really turned to developing tools and things for teachers to use in the classroom based on the research. Um, some of the folks doing the deeper learning stuff now are trying to do this as well, as well as putting things out there in reports and through other conduits, just like uh, Paul's saying, not in traditional research journals. I think they're putting them out in the MacArthur type reports or books for folks to use. Um, so I, I think that is expanding with, with sort of the different ways we have to reach out. But the last thing I would say is as teachers are interested in a problem, look at where your local resources are or even not local and reach out to them. I, I get emails from teachers sometimes and saying, you know, how do I actually do this thing that you wrote about? And I can send them examples from the curriculum that we used as part of the study and then or point them to a link to it. So um, I think reaching out is always a great way to do it as well. One of the uh, the neat things about the podcast is that I do Dan and I do get to reach out to to people and they talk to us, which is so great. And I didn't realize that we would have so many people who would be interested in talking about their research uh, in a you know in a setting which which is much more conversational than you know the the typical research paper is. And uh, uh, Jeremy brought up some great points. I just think um, we've got to convince higher education. Um, uh, you know, institutions to value a lot of different types of knowledge. And I think that can come from um, using different, for example, using different forms of media, like having podcasts about the research you've been doing that explains how to do it and what you found. And that's something that teachers could use, whether or having a website that supports a research article or things like that. I think all of those types of things are, are ideas we've got to kind of start playing with. But another one that's kind of not even been talked about is that Teachers are not encouraged to do their own research. I think there's no reason that teachers can't be capable of doing research themselves to improve their own practice, whether they come up with those everyday problems. And there's a whole field of study called teacher research. Action TR. research, yeah. Yeah, action research, teacher research. And there's a whole group of people that have really pushed this. But it just is, just doesn't seem to have, be as esteemed as the scholarly research sometimes. But it makes so much more sense. And even university people who have time to dedicate pairing with classroom teachers who want to investigate a problem and pairing together to investigate it. Can I just, can I just add there, I was, I was uh, very lucky to, to visit the U.S. Um, a, couple of, a couple of years ago. Um, I, went to see, I went to the National Science Teachers Association conference and I was incredibly impressed the number of teachers taking part in action research in the U.S. It's, it's not such a big thing over here. It, it, it really struck me as a really uh, a really positive positive thing you guys have got in the U.S. 
You know, and, and there's also a lot of researchers who study their own practice. And I think that kind of gets not a lot of credit, but at least that research is like being used. <laughs> there's some research that happens on others that never gets used by anyone. But if you're researching your own practice, at least that should lead you to improving it. Our podcast number two was actually my action research project where I used discussion to uh, help students write better research papers. And so that was a, a thing I did for my grad class that was actually really great. And it was neat to like examine my practice, like have an hypothesis on how to improve it and then develop. And, and when it works out, it's really kind of magic. Yeah, that Michael, that I see, and that episode was awesome. Um, I remember listening to it and thinking it made a lot of sense because your questions made sense right? Like you were asking real questions that a teacher would have to deal with. How do I help my students write? And what about trying this out? You did it and pursued it. And um, it like gave me tons of ideas for doing new stuff in my class. And I think that's the type of research we need to see happen more often. <laughs> we do. And hopefully, you know, pushing action research and finding more ways for, for, for teachers and university professors to publish rather than just the academic journals, which we haven't mentioned are often blocked uh, they're mm -hmm. often paid for subscriptions that my, you know, my high school does not pay for. Right, right. I think yeah, the closed access journals are aren't going to help. So, Paul, what would be your kind of uh, uh, advice, kind of as you've investigated this? Do you have any ideas or advice for um, bridging this gap between research and 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 what happens in classrooms? Well, it depends, it depends on who that advice advice is for. Uh, <laughs> for teachers. If you know that research is being done in, in your topic area, ask the, your membership societies or whatever what they're doing about uh, getting that research to you. See what we can do about getting access to journals. Hassle people about it. If, you, if, the, if, there's, a, if there's a demand, and I think there's a growing demand uh, for, for evidence-based teaching practice, people will act to fill, fill the, you know, to, to, to supply that demand. So, yeah, if you're a teacher, just uh, shout about it. Just shout about it. And if you're a university professor, what should you do? We need to, one thing we can do uh, is do stuff like this, you know, create other media formats, put your examples online, even if you have to play that game and, and kind of publish in certain types of journals, you know, put your other stuff, make other stuff available that makes it accessible. Writing that practitioner article doesn't take a ton of time if you've written a full research paper, which is basically a more accessible version of your research. Um, and just get it out in other media formats. Make a video about how to actually implement the feedback that you did from the research. Why not have a video showing how to do that? So, And then I think the last step is changing higher ed. I think higher ed institutions need to start valuing um, new forms of media. Uh, right now, it's just you know written papers, which I think those are valuable and should stay. But I think we need to value different different forms of media from um, that that accompany that. That hey, if you're not if your research isn't making a difference and you can't show how teachers can and are using this, that it's not valuable. I think that's what how we should establish impact, not based on citations. Absolutely. So, so uh, go oh, ahead. No, you go. No, you okay. got it. You. I got it. All right. So, uh, Paul, thank you so much for for chatting with us today. Not at all. Thanks for having me. Now, where can our listeners find you or your work online? Uh, so, Education and Chemistry, uh, we are, uh, the URL is uh, www.rsc.org slash EIC. Yep, you can find us there, and hopefully you'll find something interesting. And we will for sure um, link in our show notes the article that kind of inspired this podcast. It's a really thoughtful, well-written article that I think gets at some of the problems um, of the, the divide between 
research and, and what happens in classrooms. So thank you so much for joining us today, especially, uh, you know, overcoming our time differences. Um, and uh, we, yeah, we hope to continue the discuss- discussion online and in other spaces. Great. Thank you so much. If you're listening to us, we want to highlight teachers and university professors. We want to highlight education. So if you are doing something really neat in your classroom or if you've done something really neat, share it with us. We, you can tweet us at Visions of Ed um, if you're doing something creative or you can hit us up on our Facebook page. Again, our goal is to highlight and celebrate teachers and to really work to bridge this divide. Oh, yeah. And if you haven't already, you can totally subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you write us a five-star review, we will eventually read it on the air. We've got some catching <laughs> up to do. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.